Hello and welcome to another episode of Value Nigeria podcast. I trust it's been a very productive week for us. How has your week been? Thank you very much for listening to this podcast week on week. Um, without your listening, all the efforts put in will be a total waste. I truly appreciate everyone for this. Last week, we talked about the psychological pitfalls that we need to avoid as investors. It's a learning process even for me. I'm not perfect. I'm not there yet. And I'm still learning. I'm still along the curve of my own learning myself. Thank you very much for everyone that reached out that the episode was very helpful. Now, this week, we'll be talking about an investor who is not very well known. He's quite important, and that's just because Warren Buffett even attributes part of his success to lessons he learned from that investor. And this person is Philip Fisher. Philip Fisher was a security analyst and fund manager and investor many decades ago, I think in the 1940s and in the 1950s. And he's most well known for his wonderful book titled Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, which he wrote in 1958. The book is still in print. It's a wonderful book. If you've not read that book, please kindly make sure you do. I'll leave a link in the description of the episode to where you can get a copy of the book if you'd like to. Now, Warren Buffett actually said that his development or he, the investor he is today is at the reason of the influence of two people. Number one, Ben Graham, to whom he attributes about 85% of his present practice. And then Philip Fisher, to whom he attributes the remaining 15%. So Philip Fisher was quite important in the development of Warren Buffett. So we need to pay attention to who Philip Fisher was and learn lessons even from his writings or from his teachings. Philip Fisher was not a typical value investor as we know value investors. Value investors tend to be fixated on price and they are not willing to pay a high multiple to get entry into any company. They want to buy undervalued companies. Okay, However, Philip Fisher had a different approach. His own approach was to identify quality companies, quality companies that are growing quite fast, and he doesn't mind paying a premium even to get a share of that company. The, the movement of growth investing was actually attributed to Philip Fisher. Benjamin Graham is attributed as the father of value investing. Philip Fisher is said to be the father of growth investing. Now, in his book, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, chapter 3 to be precise, he discussed his buy criteria or like his checklists that every company he buys should have at least a good number of those attributes. And he listed 15 attributes that he wants his potential companies to have. And we'll be going through those checklists um, in this episode We'll be going through those checklists and then we'll be relating it to the previous checklist that we have discussed from the value point of view, which includes the four M's. Uh, there are the meaning or do you understand this company? The second is moat. Does this company have a moat? Do they have a competitive advantage that is durable, that is intrinsic and is long lasting? Thirdly, we talked about management. Does the company have a management that is full of integrity and full of skill? And lastly, we talked about margin of safety. So we'll be looking at these 15 
points that Philip Fisher raised and relating them to each of those four checklist items that we have earlier discussed. Now, the first set of Philip Fisher rules that we'll be discussing relates to understanding the business or having a grasp of what that business means. Philip Fisher's first point was that does the company have products or services that have the potential to generate increasing sales and revenues for the next several years? Now, what does it mean by this? Philip Fisher was trying to say that this company, are they growing their revenues? Do they have products or services that can be skilled even to generate larger revenues? We want to make sure that this company is not just a one-hit wonder. We want to make sure that they have products or services that can be skilled. We want to make sure that the profit we are seeing is not due to non-recurring items, like maybe they've sold off a division that wouldn't be repeated even in the coming year. We want to make sure that they are go- the goods they produce or the service they render, they have the ability to scale it up. They can offer it to more people. That way generates larger revenues, which hopefully will trickle down to profits. Now, the second point that Philip Fisher talked about that relates to understanding of the business is, does the company have an above-average sales team? Now, this is very important because if you have a company that is churning out lovely products, that is producing wonderful services, if they cannot sell those products or services to the populace or to specific clients, then there's no point. What emphasis does the company place on training? Do they train their staff in sales, in customer service? All these things determine how many customers you can get, the revenues you can generate, and eventually the profits. You want to know what's the average revenue per staff, and you can find that by dividing the total revenue by the total number of staff that the company has. You can also find the average profit per staff, that's dividing the profit after tax, by the total number of staff. That will tell you how profitable, how much sales each staff is generating. And you can compare this with other competitors within the same industry to find out how this company ranks even amongst its peers. The third point that um, Philip Fisher talked about that um, relates to understanding the business is does the company have outstanding labor and personnel relations. You want to know how the company treats their staff, what they pay like for their staff as compared to other competitors in the industry. Do they give their staffs all the benefits that they deserve? You can also compare the the pay of the average staff with that of the management. Does that company overpay their management at the detriment of staff or are ordinary staff well paid just as company management is? What is the feedback of staff even about this company? If they had a choice, would they still work for that company or would they work for a rival company? A good place to find some of this information is a website called Glassdoor. So that's www.glassdoor.com. On that site, you can search for particular companies and you can get feedback of employees, of clients, of people who do business with that company. Usually, it's anonymous, so they can be quite frank and they can tell you if the company treats their staff well or not. However, take it with a pinch of salt as some people might just be on a vendetta to smear the image of that company. 
But that site is a very good resource even for finding out what the staff think about that company. The fourth point Philip Fisher raised that I feel relates to understanding the business is in that industry that the company operates, how does that company compare in relation to its competitors? For each company, there are specific key performance indicators that can you can use even to judge how a company ranks within its, its rivals. Specific industries like the banking industry, you can use the capital adequacy ratio, you can use the non-performing loan ratio, you can use the loan-to-deposit ratio or the cost of funds and use all this to rank companies within the banking industry and decide if one is better than the other or more efficient than the other. For manufacturing companies, you can look at the debt that that company has. How does their level of debt as compared to the equity? How do they compare with other companies within the same industry? Using parameters like this will give you an idea of how that company ranks among these rivals. Usually, we want to only buy companies that are in the top two in whatever industry that we are, lo- we are looking at. Now, the next set of Philip Fisher rules that I would be discussing, I feel relates more to the moot or to the competitive advantage of the business. So the point number five that Philip Fisher raised is, is the company developing new products or services that can increase revenues once the present products are no longer attractive? So you want to find out, uh, this company that we've bought, are they just focused on just one product alone or are they developing new products that we, that can be you know, replacements for these present products in future? The present products or services that this company produces at one point or the other in the future is going to be relevant. So are they developing something new that will take its place? Take an example in the banking industry. The, the regular products that banks make their money off is of interest. We see banks developing new products. Today's world, we are talking about things like fintech products that banks are producing. We are talking about electronic banking and new services, artificial intelligence that banks are you know, deploying. So is the company you are interested in, are they doing things to secure their future, to protect their moat? Remember that if a company sits down and just keeps doing what it did all the time, in the next couple of years, they will become irrelevant because new rivals, new competition will come in with new products that would steal their market share. You want to know, is the company doing any research? Are they developing new products? Unfortunately, many Nigerian companies do not specifically report what they are doing about research and development. But this is a good metric that I believe companies should begin to incorporate into their expenses they should let us know how much they are spending on research and development of new products or new services the sixth point that philip fisher raised is um, how does the company's research and development expense relates to the company's size so for large companies for companies that have revenues of multi-billions of naira we expect them to have at least a sizable research and development team that is able to churn out new products and new services. If you look at companies like Amazon, they started out as as a retailer and today they've gone into Amazon Web Services, they've branched out into many other adjacent businesses and you know, 
they're churning out new products and new services each and every day. And this is what we want to see from our companies. So we want to know how much of research and development our companies are doing. The seventh point that Philip Fisher raised is, does the company have a worthwhile profit margin? Now we are getting to the heart, to the core of assessment of the company's moat. What's the profit margin? How much of the revenue translates to profits at the end of the day? As we expect um, revenues to grow, we also should expect profits to grow as well. So how much of revenues can the company translate even into profits? Large profit margins are produced and preserved by competitive advantages. So ask yourself, what's the company doing to preserve this competitive advantage? Are they doing things? Are they researching? Are they producing new products? And these are, these are the things that we want to know about this company and about their moods. And the number eight points that Philip Fisher raised, which is the last point under the moat, under, you know, that relates to the moat of the company, is what is the company doing to maintain or to improve its profit margins? Philip Fisher argued that when one buys a company, the past does not matter significantly anymore. What now matters is what the company is doing presently and will do in the future, what the future profits of that company will be. Everything that has happened in the past is now gone. So what is the company doing? You should be interested in finding out, are they they undertaking cost-cutting measures? Are they reducing their costs in a bid to improve their profitability? What are the new products that this company is developing? How aggressive are they? Are they maintaining their market share? We should, however, note that cost-cutting is just a temporary measure. It cannot be relied on for long-term profit growth. The company has to be doing things to maintain or to preserve their moat. Um, at this point, I believe we should draw this week's episode to a close. We've discussed the first eight of 15 points that Philip Fisher raised even in his book as points to look out for when you're buying a company. Next week, we'll discuss the remaining seven and find out how they relate to the remaining two M's on our checklist, which is the management and the margin of safety. I hope it's been a lovely episode. I hope you've learned one thing or the other. Thank you very much for listening. Do have a lovely week ahead.